0: Before I introduce today's guest speaker, Otis, will you prepare your hearts with me to hear God's word? And can I lead us in a prayer? Would you pray with me this morning? Oh, Father, our Father who's God, our Father in heaven, you're gracious, you're loving, you're full of mercy, you're kind, you're compassionate. Lord, we pause today just to exalt and magnify your names, just declare that you are God and that you love us and that we love you. We desire and we ask that your kingdom would come, that your will be done in this place this morning. I ask, Father, that you'd teach me everything that you desire for me to know in this place today. I'm confident that you're going to use truth through uh, Brother Otis as he comes and speaks that truth to me, and that there's things that you want me to learn, things that you want me to hear. I pray that you'd give me years to hear each of those things pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you. The task of introducing our guest speaker today is really a great privilege for me. I met Otis Compton just over 20 years ago. Otis is a graduate of Oklahoma Baptist University. He did his master's studies at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. He's married to Paula K. Paschal. Where'd Paula Kay Oh, well, there she is. Hi, Paula K. Otis married way up like the rest of us guys. They have eight incredible children. After graduation from seminary, Otis and Paula found their way back to Shawnee, Oklahoma, back to their alma mater, Oklahoma Baptist University. And Otis was offered a job there on their staff. And he worked there for a number of years uh, on staff and, and, and working with the young people, the, the college students that were there. At church. But a few years later, Otis felt the call of the Holy Spirit to make a a major change in his life. And after years and years of studying to be part of ministry and being in ministry, God was calling Otis to a secular opportunity. And two of his former students, and 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 he and Paula purchased an old trailer park in North Norman at I-35 and and Indian Hills Road. And when I say old trailer park, I mean old trailer park. And they moved into the old house that was there, that was for the caretakers. And Otis immediately began to restore the house and fix it up. And and Paula Kay began to make it a home. And while they were there, they uh, did an incredible job of restoring that. The move that that left them from, from Shawnee to Norman, among other things, left them looking for a church home. And... When Otis was here, they came to to Western Hills for a visit. When Otis was here the last time to speak with us, he shared a little bit about their first visit and how they ran out of the building looking for an opportunity somewhere else to go besides here at what was Western Hills at the time. But despite those obstacles, God did call them here. And Otis and I began to immediately serve. And we spent another seven to eight years serving together here at, at what was Western Hills at the time, nearly three, four times a week, three or four times a day, days out of the week. After the prompting of God, Otis knew that it was time for them to sell the properties. And so they did and they began to look for God's next move. And when OBU heard that he was once again available, they basically created a position for him to move into, to lure him back into that. Once, once Otis has come and been a part of you, you really would like to have him back. He's just that kind of guy. After another lengthy stint at OBU, it became obvious that God was calling him and them to a new position, and he joined the staff of Reaching Souls International, an organization that's very dear to the heart of this church. And uh, Otis is in, in, in what I would call an incredible love relationship with Jesus Christ. He devours God's word just to satisfy his desire to know more about who God is. Because of his love for Jesus and his knowledge of God and his word, I trust completely that Otis is going to share life-changing truth with us today, and you're going to love the way that he shares and the way that he brings God's word to us with vigor and with life. Would you please help me give a rousing Together Church welcome to my Christian brother, my friend, and our speaker today, Mr. Otis Compton.
1: I don't think I've ever received an introduction like that, brother. Thank you. Uh, he has lots of other stories he could tell. He was uh, protected me, my 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 uh, my identity by by holding those, and so I appreciate that as well. Uh, as, as you know, Greg Werner is quite a servant, and and uh, probably the biggest demonstration of that for me was when on that property that he spoke of, we had a. Uh, a sewage lagoon, and we had a, uh, a sewage pit that all of the sewage from 49 different homes ran into, and then that was pumped out into the lagoons, and we had a pump go down, and I was in the bottom of that pit working on the pump, and Greg was there helping me up up on the top side, and I was having an issue trying to get the pump uh, to work again, and he said, move over. And I looked up and he came down the ladder and climbed down into that sewage pit with me. I don't know if there's a greater demonstration of brotherhood and of willingness to serve than that. And it's marked me to this day. I appreciate uh, his friendship and the journey together and and the journey with this church. It feels like coming home. Uh, Every time we we get to have the opportunity to be here, it feels like coming home and we're grateful for it and uh, grateful for the years that that God led us to be here with what was Western Hills Church and now Together Church and and as I've uh, teased Brother Jerry many times. I don't know of a church that, that that you could go and pastor a church and pastor several different churches in the same location. That's kind of been what's happened here. And now Brandon, as he stepped into that, I had the privilege of being here on Jerry's last Sunday and kind of the affirmation of Brandon's first Sunday. And so, so grateful for the testimony of this body and of this fellowship uh, and how that's being heralded. It's like, Paul when he wrote to the Thessalonians he said the testimony of your faith is being heralded out throughout the world and uh, I believe that to be true uh, through this fellowship through this body of Christ here and grateful to be here with you as uh, was said I've had the opportunity and privilege now since December 2018 Uh, to serve uh, as Reaching Souls Chief Operating Officer. I first heard about Reaching Souls because we came to this church. Had we not come to this church, I don't know if I'd have heard about it, but went to a banquet. I think I was actually uh, a guest of Phyllis Werner's uh, and sat at her table the first banquet. Of course, met Ben and Linda during those years, and... and, uh, and heard many stories. Uh, many from this church were going on what we call LDIs now, Leadership Development Institutes, uh, during those years. And the girls would all go and come back and have, you know, braids and, and uh, beads and everything. I remember seeing Lauren and, and uh, her group of friends in that, that context and and hearing the stories of what God was doing. And, and uh, we became supporters during that time, began uh, praying for and, and financially a part of that, but never in the, my wildest dreams, quite honestly, did I think I'd be uh, serving, uh, reaching souls. And so it's a privilege, uh, to be a part of an incredible, uh, ministry that God's doing. And, uh, he's using, uh, many people to pull that off. And it's just a, an honor and a privilege to be a part uh, of that team. And so, uh, as Brandon, uh, contacted me and I, I think I came earlier this year in, in the spring, right before I actually came and preached, and I left that day to go on a trip and, and, uh, just to kind of give an update. And so, uh, but he asked me to come and preach this morning. And, and uh, to do that, I, I thought I'd share some stories as well from the field. and Because I, I believe that there may be the best way of me communicating uh, what God's put on my heart this morning. But I want to look at a, a, a couple of verses. This is in Acts chapter 20. As a matter of fact, when I, the, the opportunity that I have right now, many times uh, when we get stories from the field. And this most recent trip where I was in Rwanda, just returned last Saturday... Uh, I feel like what it must have felt like like to be living in Acts. Uh, The the book of Acts is the Acts of the the church, the early church, as God was beginning to establish it. And we're seeing that same reality take place around the world, uh, that God is still doing things. I appreciate what Brandon said earlier. God has not stopped working. He's still on the throne When you look at the world around us and all things that are happening, as we sang about, the things of earth go strangely dim in comparison to who Christ is. We can be overwhelmed sometimes. The evil and the horrific things that are happening in the world. The fact that, oh, you got beat 49 to nothing yesterday. God is still on the throne. God is still on the throne. And too often times, from our perspective, we can begin to think, well, maybe, just maybe he's not. We begin to get concerned that it affects us personally, and, and we look around us and say, where is God? Sometimes in the midst of suffering, I had a great, wise mentor of mine say that, that sometimes we ask in the midst of suffering, where is God? And he turned that on his tail and said, where there is suffering, God is. Where there is suffering, God is. And I've seen that portrayed in my own life. I've seen that portrayed in my family and my church family and the journey that I've been on and through the years of ministry that God has led Paul and I on have seen that to be evidenced, but I don't know that I've seen it more real than I have in recent days uh, as I've had the opportunity and the privilege to see God at work around the world. Well, Paul in, in uh, Acts uh, chapter 20 Uh, said this in in verse 22. He says, and now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, bound in by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in town after town, the Holy Spirit testifies to me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. So Paul's headed to Jerusalem. He knows that the potential is he's going to end up in chains. He's going to be afflicted. But listen to this, verse 24. But I count my life of no value to myself. So that I may finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. What a great perspective to have. What a great, and living in our world and no matter what challenges that you're facing and sometimes uh, as we we grow a little bit older and some of us are having a little bit harder time to get out of bed in the morning and facing some of the challenges that we face politically and culturally and and, and it can be overwhelming at times, but to stay focused on the fact that, that I've been called and God has invited each of us into his work to participate, to share in his work. He doesn't need us, as Brandon said in the offertory. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need our resources. He's completely self-sufficient. He is God, and there is no other. But he's invited us to join him. He's invited us. He's given us the privilege to come alongside of him and to establish his kingdom. We live out what it is to be a joint heir with Christ. And Paul understood that so well. Even in the face of what God had even promised, the Holy Spirit had told him, you're going to be bound. You're going to be incarcerated. There's going to be difficult days ahead. And he says, you know, even if that's so, again, I count my life of no value to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. You know, as I have opportunity and privilege to walk alongside of Our national missionaries that are scattered in 10 different African countries now, in Cuba, now in in Mexico, in India, and Lord willing, uh, in Vietnam, in Colombia. We just had a team that just returned from Vietnam doing an exploration. We believe God's calling us to move in that direction. So who knows where all God is going to lead. As I have the privilege and opportunity to come alongside and many of them facing unbelievably difficult circumstances. When COVID hit here and we faced all the different challenges that we did and the lockdowns and all the different things that took place, just multiply that about a hundred times over for most of our men and women that are serving overseas. Some of the difficulties that they face, some of the challenges that they face, but even without COVID, some of the, just the daily challenges. When, when you live in a context and a culture where, where the government can change on the dime and, and, and and the financial situation and the circumstances are just so overwhelming that you're not completely sure where your next meal is going to come from and, and and that's sort of even maybe kind of getting at what most of our brothers and sisters that live in other parts of the world face every day the challenges that they experience and I'll be honest with you, we've, we receive testimonies every month from the field. I mean, our national missionaries, as they send their stories in and we read those testimonies, a lot of times I kind of scratch my head and, and I have to remind myself that God is God because sometimes I read the stories, I said, that's not possible. I'll read some of these stories and say, there, there's no way, that's not possible. I, I, I want to believe, I want to have faith, but as I read them, I'm like, is that real? Can that be real? Does that really happen? Because my personal experience oftentimes doesn't give testimony to that. And so one of the things that we do in order to be a ministry that has integrity and there's accountability is we check that. We, we do what we call spot checks. Ben, I'm sure that you created that, that term and, and, and going. I know Ben's been on many of those trips where you just go to see, boy, is this real? We want to be good stewards of the resources that you as a church and some of you individually and many, many other donors have given to the ministry. And so we want to be good stewards of that. And one of the ways we do that, we got to have accountability. And so we have monthly reports and we get those stories. But sometimes you got to see it with your own eyes. And so that's actually why I just went to Rwanda. Rwanda was hit really hard uh, with COVID. Uh, Not so much that that many people really lost their lives. I mean, proportionately, percentage-wise, it was pretty similar to most of the other places around the world. But but the way the government and the way the country responded to it, it was pretty devastating. And it actually came off of a really difficult time. About the, the year before that, in the end of 2018 and 2019, they were going through a political... Uh, transition and change. And so the government had shut things down and, and uh, we began to see the, the change and even how the reports were coming in from national missionaries and how many people responded to the gospel and began asking a lot of questions and found out that, that in Rwanda during that season, you couldn't have what we call an open air meeting. They were not allowed to have one, or if they were, it was only between actually between two o'clock and four o'clock in the afternoon, they couldn't have it near a school, a hospital or a prison. And, uh, and while they were having the open air meeting, where they gathered people in a marketplace, they would also, they had to apply for it, and then there would be a, a government official standing next to the pastor, next to the national missionary he was preaching, just looking at the crowd. I mean, they weren't necessarily doing it because they were opposed to the gospel. They were supposed to make sure that this guy didn't say anything politically wrong. But can you imagine in that context? I mean, it affects how people come and respond and hear the gospel. And then you add on top of that the fact that Rwanda shut down You could not go outside. Beginning about late March of 2020, you could not go outside of your home. You couldn't leave your residence. And if you did, you could be incarcerated. You definitely couldn't gather a group. You couldn't bring people together. And that continued through all of 20 and all of 21, uh, even up until February of this year. We were having to evaluate that as chief operating officer. My, one of my responsibilities is make sure that, that what we're doing is, is fulfilling our vision, which is to reach the, most amount, the greatest amount of people in the shortest amount of time in the most efficient way. And when you can't do the work, we've got to ask the question, do we still expend the resources there? Still a great need, but that, that's part of what we have to evaluate. And so this trip that I was just on was sort of seeing how that happened and where things were now, in January of this year, I actually met with the leaders when I was in Kenya, the leaders of, of, of Rwanda, and said, if things don't change, we're probably going to have to back off. We have roughly 300 national missionaries in Rwanda, and we're having to consider, do we reallocate those resources somewhere else? If you're not able to do the work, then maybe we need to reallocate that. And then in February... Uh, Things began to turn and began to change. And, and then in March, the reports are coming in. We went from basically they had dropped to having about, they were, they were many were not having open air meetings because we couldn't have them. And even with the work that they were doing, they were only seeing about twenty four to 25,000 people a month come to Christ. Now you say, did you just say only? And, and, and let me tell you, I did just say only. Because before that, before COVID and before that, they were seeing about 124,000 people come to Christ every month. But in February of this year, it jumped up to about 65. And then in March, it was right at 75. And then in April, May, and June, and July now, and August, it's been over 110,000 people a month coming to Christ in Rwanda. As a matter of fact, the video you just saw, uh, all of the uh, information that I had, I I told Dustin, our CEO and president, uh, and our and our board that that we would probably reach a hundred million sometime in late July, maybe the first of August. It's kind of what we were thinking, sometime in April or whatever. That's what it was looking like in May at our May board meeting. That's what we shared, and uh, but because of what happened in Rwanda, and because the National Missionaries began to see that, and man, they just went gangbusters and uh, started just you know going like. 24 times a month instead of 12 times a month, which is what we asked him to do outside the walls of our church. And we reached that on June 15th. That, 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 that milestone that you just heard about. A hundred million souls. hundred million souls. And, and in this this version of the video, I don't think I heard the, the, the phrase. And one of the versions of the video, Dustin says... A hundred million is a lot of zeros. Seems like a lot of zeros. It does. I mean, even I wrote it to, to Brandon in Texas, Hey, can we show the hundred million? And every time I do it, I got one, zero, 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 zero. I keep thinking, okay, that had too many zeros? I mean, I'm trying to figure out what a hundred million. It's so, so huge. It's hard to fathom. And, and it is a lot of zeros, but Dustin's made the comment multiple times. It's actually a lot of ones. That's a lot of ones. A lot of individuals, a lot of individual souls, men and women, boys and girls that have come to Christ since 1986 when the ministry was founded by Jimmy Hodges and Ben Main is coming alongside of him to establish that ministry. 100 million souls, one by one by one. And so when I was in Rwanda, that's part I was in. I'm looking for the ones. I mean, I can't, the, to, to perceive or have the ability to, to contact Every one of those hundred may be impossible. As a matter of fact, last year we saw 7.8 million plus salvations for Christ. People that came to Christ. Even to come close to even seeing all of them would be impossible. Or even just last month when we saw almost 800,000 souls come to Christ. I can't, not, we could, all of us could go and check the work and there'd be no possibilities for us to see all of them. But what I can do is from those stories, I can ask our leaders, say, I want to meet this national missionary and I want to meet this individual. And and I sent a list of about 22 that I wanted to see on this most recent trip. And we ended up, because of opportunity and stuff, seeing 16 different national missionaries. And they brought with them the story, the individual that was in the story, or sometimes the two or three individuals in the story. And so when when I think about this verse, but I count my life of no value to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. That's what our national missionaries are doing every day. And because they're doing that every day, they're seeing individuals come to Christ. Many of them, during COVID, they couldn't have an open-air meeting, so they went door-to-door. And some of the stories that I want to share with you this morning is a result of them faithfully going, even though they were taking their own life at risk because of COVID, but also battling some of the challenges that they were facing in their culture. And with the political restraints, they were still going out sharing the gospel. I got to meet some of these people. Let me tell you about one. I'm going to tell you about three or four, but let me tell you about this first one. One of our national missionaries <clears throat> turned in a story in March, of 20, March 26 of 2021. And he said he was returning from a mission in a village. So he had gone, just like our national missionaries so he'd gone to a village to proclaim the gospel. And he's returning home, and he comes near a, a wooded area, which before I went to Rwanda, I thought, was that rare? It's really not. Rwanda has a lot of wooded areas. It's a, it's a country of a thousand hills, and I mean, it's just beautiful. There's trees everywhere. It's a beautiful, beautiful country. But he said he's making his way back and he comes near this, this forest, this wooded area, and a man comes out to him to rob him. The man, the national missionary has a bag, and in his bag, he has some, some possessions of his. And so this man comes out and says, give me your bag. If you don't give me your bag, I'll take your life. And he had a knife and he was threatening him. And so the national missionary handing the bag And and he emptied the bag out, and in the bag was a Bible and some sweets that the National Missionary had bought to take back to his children. The man gets angry with him. He pushes him to the ground. He's about to beat him. And the National Missionary begins to pray and prays out loud and prays for this man and prays for his own life. And the man says, are you a pastor? And he said, I am. He said, have you been out lying to people? He said, no, I've been out telling them the gospel of grace, the gospel of truth. And the man said, something, something told me, as he saw this man, as I saw this national missionary walking, something told this man that in that bag is something of great value. What are you hiding? Because all I see is this book and these sweets. And he says, that's of greatest value. He said, come home with me and let me tell you about it. This man lived in the forest there. He lived in, he was a homeless and he was a notorious criminal in that area. So after a while and talking to him, the man agrees to go home with this national missionary. And so they go home. I love this part of the story. And I had to see it for myself and hear it. As they're walking to the house, the national missionary's wife comes out out on the stoop and says, starts yelling and screaming, why have you brought this murderer and this thief and this rapist to our house? Now wives, I think we can understand that. She knew who he was. He was notorious in that area and she knew that not only was he a thief and there's some attribution that possibly he was a murderer and definitely he was a rapist. So the national missionary, I said, what did you do? I'm having this conversation with him. I said, what did you do? And in his story, he actually said this, but he fleshed it out a bit more. He said, I asked the man to stay outside and I went in the home with my wife and I explained to her that this man is going to become a follower of Christ and we're to bring him into our home in order to do that. Count my life of no value. The woman brings some clothes to him, brings some water for him to bathe. He'd not bathed in months, perhaps even years. And he bathes and he changes clothes and he begins to live with this family. I'm sitting across the table from this man just a little over nine days ago. A changed man. He told the story from, my, from his side. In the story, it doesn't say that, that about knowing that there's some value in the bag. And he said, I, I was very angry with him, and I was about to take his life. And then when he prayed, something happened, and I knew I needed to go with him. This man's now a follower of Christ. He's one of this national missionaries, Timothy's. He goes and shares the gospel. He's, he confessed to the community. The next Sunday after he became a follower of Christ, the National Missionary invited him to come to his church and to stand up and to make his confession. The man said, I was a little scared of that because many of the people in the room were people that I had robbed and I didn't know what they would do to me. And some of them actually, some of the members of the church walked out of the church when he came in. Became angry with the National Missionary that he would bring this rapist, this murderer, this thief into their church. God has completely changed this man's life. He's one of those 100 million souls that's a follower of Christ now. Amen. He's one of those that have heard the gospel that has, his life has changed. You know, when I find myself in those conversations when I receive these testimonies, when I'm sitting across the, the table speaking with someone like that, I, I'm always incredibly humbled and convicted because of how I tend to respond to the culture I live in or to the people around me and, and how more, more times than not, I'm more concerned about protecting my life instead of, as Paul said here, counting my life as nothing in order that I may proclaim the gospel of grace to others. Well, what, a, what, a, what a perspective change that, that, that we need. What, what a, an evidence. And Sometimes I think it's because I don't really believe this can happen. I don't, I don't fully believe that, that these things can happen until I see it with my own eyes and I come away going, it just happened. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9, I've mentioned this, I think I've been here before, but that... That as he looked into the, the, the villages and the fields and everything, he was, he, was, he was overwhelmed because the people were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then he turned to his disciples and he said, the fields are ripe for harvest. He made a declaration. He didn't ask them if they were ripe. He said they are ripe for harvest. The problem is there's not enough laborers. When I look around in the fields that we live in, when I drive in here this morning and I pass so many different places that that if you just look and you look with a different set of eyes, you can see that the fields are ripe for harvest. The problem is sometimes there's not enough laborers. We're not willing to step foot out into those fields and maybe even risk our own life or even compromise or somehow or another minimize or or challenge our own family but instead that we'd have that perspective that as this national missionary did that, that this man, as he told his wife, it's going to become a follower of Christ. We just need to invest some time in him. Wow. Let me tell you this story. Uh, we met Ettenay, uh, one of our national missionaries. and uh, He tells a story that, that he went to a home. It was during COVID. Again, they weren't able to, uh, uh, to have open air meetings. But on March 23rd of 2021... He went to a home, he had heard about this young girl that was, was ill and her parents, her family had spent all of their resources with the local healers, the witch doctors, the ones that, that promised that they would bring healing to her life and, and instead it had just intensified. And so he and his wife went to the home. They, they spoke to the mother, and, and uh, there were several people there. The girl had actually made a real turn for the worse, and she had, she had passed out. They, there was even some speculation that maybe she was dead. She was just on the edge. And, and so the, there were, there were the, the witch doctors there and neighbors and family there uh, attending, caring for, if you, if you know this culture, I mean, there's lots of uh, corporate grief that takes place when things like it happen. So that's all happening. And we almost imagine that picture where Jesus, when he went into the girl's home, where the people were, were weeping because the young girl had died. I mean, it's that kind of context. And, and this pastor and his wife go there and, and, they ask the mother, can we, can we pray for your daughter? And, and she agreed, and he said, Well, before we do that, can you remove all of the items that have been placed upon her? In that culture with, with witchcraft and with the witch doctors and everything, she's got all kinds of things on her body, in her clothing and stuff that's supposedly able to heal her, in her bed and under her pillow and all these things. So they removed all of those items. And then they went into this young girl's room. They asked everyone to step out. Does that not sound biblical? I mean, they asked everyone to step out. And the, 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 the National Missionary and his wife went in. And they began to pray over this young girl. While they're praying over this young girl, there's a voice that came out. And I'm not going to stand here and try to give you evidence of whether or not demons are real or not. But I'm telling you, there's times that you don't have any other explanation that it, it's the work of the enemy. And as they're praying over her, this voice comes out and begins to have a conversation with them. They prayed over her, prayed the voice out, prayed the demon out, and the young girl came alive. And the Nash missionary said he and his wife, each of them took one of her arms and helped her stand up and began to walk her around the room. And she was pretty exhausted. She'd been in this state for years now, about a year and a half, and she'd been in some evidence of this, this disease or this oppression that she was experiencing. And so he called for the the, the mother to bring some water, and so they prayed and prayed over the water, and the girl drank the water, and then she came out of the room to this crowd, standing on her own two feet and completely healed. (laughs) She was 14 at the time. She's almost 16 now. I sat across the table from Constantine. By her own testimony and by the testimony of her, her, the national missionary, she's kind of a shy girl. And, and you could see it. She was a little bit hesitant at first to kind of look up. I mean, here's this ugly-looking American show up and asking her questions or whatever. And, and, uh, and it <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> that was for you. And as we began to ask her to tell her story, she says, I don't remember. She said, all I remember was I woke up and I didn't know where I was or what had happened to me but I knew something had happened. I wondered when I got the story, because it tells the story of Constantine, And, and one of the reasons why I wanted to meet her and meet the national missionary, I thought, okay, when something like that happens, there's gonna be something else that happens. And so I said, the national missionary, I said, is that all? He says, well, no. He said, when we came out, there were about 40 people that were gathered. And so I began to preach the gospel and tell them the reason why this girl is standing on her own two feet is because of Jesus. And 23 other people came to Christ that day because of the testimony of what God had done. I mean, when you, when you see God at work, you can't deny it. In this whole community, I asked a young girl, I said, what impact has your life change had? And she goes, almost all my neighbors, my mom has come to Christ, and almost all of my neighbors have come to Christ. Some of the witch doctors that had been attending to her have come to Christ. And she began to tell her story and what God was doing. One of us asked her, what do you want to do now? And she goes, I want to be a missionary. She goes with that national missionary and his wife sharing the gospel all the time now telling her story. She shares her story everywhere they go. And she, she says, I want to be in And she began to light up. And she said, I'm in the choir. Brandon, you appreciate this. She said, I'm in the choir. And that culture, if you're in the choir, you've gone through a lot. I mean, you don't just get picked to be in the choir. I mean, just because you can sing may put you in the choir here. But there, you got to be singing. But there also has to be an evidence. And she had, she had earned the, the, the privilege in the community there to be in the choir. So she sings. She said, can I sing for you? This shy, young 16-year-old girl stood up. There's about 10 of us there, four of us from the U.S. and others that are there. And she stands up and just at first it's a little, little shaky. And then with boldness she begins to sing. Interpreters tells she's singing about her change in life. Began to interpret what she was singing about what God had done in her life. This beautiful, just a just presentation, declaration of the gospel coming out of this young girl that just a little over a year before was not even able to voice a word. She's one of those 100 million souls that heard the gospel of grace because a national missionary didn't consider his own life and went into the midst of a really dark place and saw God change. One of the stories that I asked to to have was uh, one of our national missionaries sent in the story of June of 2021. And he was on a bus Traveling from one of the cities to another city to go and do an evangelistic effort that he was on his way to do. And he had accumulated some resources to do so. And while he was on the bus, which is not unusual, the person sitting next to him, I've just got to be honest with you, I'm on long flights. I don't really want to talk to the person next to me. But he's on a long bus ride and he's sharing the gospel with the young man that's next to him. And as he's sharing the gospel, the young man has demonstrated an interest. And so as they talk, they exchange phone numbers because he wants to follow up with him. And then the national missionary falls asleep in this long bus ride. And he's awakened as this young man wakes him up and says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm getting off at this stop. And he gets off of the bus, and the national missionary dozes back off. And when he gets to his stop, he gets off, and he realizes at that point that his wallet is not with him anymore. And all the resources that he had to carry out this evangelistic effort that he was on is gone. And it doesn't take him long, but he thinks, hmm. I think the young man robbed me. So he begins to call the young man on, on the phones because they had exchange numbers. Begins to call, no answer, no answer, and then he calls and it says the server the phone is not in service. And then he thinks, well, I'll texting. So he sends him an SMS message, says, "I'm a man of God, you know that. I don't believe this is who you are." Uh, please don't do this, do not do do this and bring this upon yourself. This is is part of the work of God. Please return my wallet, you know, that kind of thing. Find out from the young man that when he got off of the bus and after he received the second call, he opened up his phone and he pulled the SIM card out. He didn't want to hear from the national missionary. But because he couldn't sleep that night and he kept sensing conviction, he puts the SIM card back in. As soon as he does, this message pops up. And so he calls the National Missionary, said, I'm getting on the bus at 8 o'clock. I'll be where you are by 9 o'clock. He comes back, gives him his wallet. And what does the National Missionary do? He invites him to come and go with him on this evangelistic effort, he invites him to come and live with him. And this young man, Felix, is now a follower of Christ, yeah. is one of this man's Timothys, yeah. and a part of seeing the gospel proclaimed. Even beyond what the National Missionary did on that bus. It's story after story like that. It's 100 million of those. Now it's a, almost 102 million of those. Of, of men and women. That are hearing the gospel of grace because there are men and women that are not counting their lives of their found value. They're yielding it and, and convicting me and reminding me that, that those harvest fields are here. It's not ours to determine whether or not there's a harvest field outside the walls of this church. It's our responsibility to believe that Jesus said there is and then to go and proclaim the gospel. And see more people together in Christ to build up his kingdom to see it established. Let me tell you two more quick stories. Not quick because of, uh, the stories are quick, but just quick to, to honor your time. One of the stories that I asked to, to visit with was the national missionary said that, that uh, he was doing an open-air meeting. And it came time for the invitation, and uh, this man walks through the crowd completely dressed in Muslim garb. And, and he comes to the, to the front and, and wants to have a conversation because he's under conviction. As a matter of fact, what had happened was that he was a very angry Muslim man. By his own testimony, he said he's a very angry Muslim man. He had been a Muslim for 28 years. Uh, his wife, and I don't understand the full story, his wife was a follower of Christ. He's beaten his wife. As a matter of fact, just that very day, he had beaten his wife. And somewhere inside of him, he says, I, get, I, need, I need something different. So he shows up. He knew this, this national missionary or heard that he was doing this kind of a evangelistic effort. And so he goes and he hears the gospel. And he comes and he begins to ask questions. And the national missionary shares the gospel with him. And this Muslim man, for 28 years, becomes a follower of Christ. He ended up going to jail for a few months. As matter of fact, he left the house that morning. He'd beaten his wife. He thought he'd killed her. And so at this open air meeting, the police actually were there and they arrested him. And as he was leaving, he gave his confession. He spent several months in prison. A national missionary went and visited him and discipled him. He came out of prison. Imagine this, you leave the house one morning having, you know, don't do this, but having beaten your wife and not sure whether or not she's alive or not. You go to prison and a few months later, you come back and she's alive and now you're changed. There are other... Muslim families in his area that have, become to, have come to Christ now because of his testimony. The last one I'll tell you, um, Our national missionary named Valens was uh, preaching the gospel. He said that God put on his heart on this day to preach a message out of John on forgiveness. And he said it was, it was not a message he had preached before, but he was going to do this open air meeting. And it's very clear that God said, preach on this, on forgiveness. And so he's preaching this message on forgiveness. And at the end of the time, this man comes forward and he's, he's, he's emotional and he's crying out, I need forgiveness. I need forgiveness. I, I need to be saved. I need to be, my life needs to be changed. And so the national ministry said, great. But the man said, but I cannot forgive those that have killed my family. This man, when he was six years old, his entire family, save his brother that was four years older than him, was killed during the genocide. His mom, his dad, all the rest of his siblings, his aunts, his uncles, all of his cousins, he does not know of one family member living outside of he and his brother. And the National Missionary, when he said that, National Missionary said, you must forgive others. If you don't forgive others, Christ can't forgive you. Whew. Well, that's a hard teaching. And he said, I can't do that. I cannot forgive them. He said, if you do not forgive others, God can't forgive you. I said, that's a mystery sense of, wow, why, how, why did you say that? I mean, i would taken the salvation, you know, I mean, my temptation. This man wants to, he's obviously wanting to respond to the gospel. He said, God told me that that was the message I was to deliver. So after praying and after consultation, this man talking to him, the man finally stands up and declares his forgiveness of those that have infected his family. He became a follower of Christ. I asked him, I said, you know, I don't want to be insensitive. And it's it's a little bit of a touchy topic in Rwanda to talk about the genocide. You have to be very careful about how you do that. There's a whole history and we went to the genocide museum. It just, you know, I'm, I'm still, I'm not, I probably will be for the rest of my life. I still don't, I can't get it. I mean, I'm just, my heart breaks. I mean, even as I think about it now, but I asked him, I said, I said, your whole family. He said, yes. And he, again, he reiterated that. I said, so did you forgive in general that, 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 that there were the, the Hutus and the, 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 those that, that were instrumental in that did you forgive in general those that that took your family's life he said yes i said what about specifically he said yes i said so you know specific people he said yes several of the people that took his family's life spent some time in jail but they now live in his community and he sees them all the time and he's gone to them individually he says matter of fact some of them came to me because while they were in jail they heard the gospel and they came and asked my forgiveness This man was the freest man I think I've ever been around. His spirit was light. He meets regularly with other genocide survivors and shares the gospel with them and meets regularly with those that have committed the atrocities of genocide and offers the grace of the gospel to them. Walked away from that conversation and thought, you know, I get upset when somebody cuts me off in traffic and hold a grudge for the rest of my days over that. No personal offense necessarily at all. My wife did not say amen. She was tempted to. (laughs) It's like, they're not doing that to you. I said, they did do it to me. And I count myself, as Paul says, I count myself of no real value. When my life has already been expended, I've already given it over. When we say we come to Christ, we yield ourselves to him. We die to ourselves. That's what we do when we step into those baptistry waters to say, I'm dying with Christ. I'm raised to walk as a new person, as a new man, as a new woman, as a follower of Christ. My life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. And we live that way. When we wake up in the morning with that in our minds and hearts, when we go throughout our day with that kind of understanding, like these national missionaries are doing every day, it'll change. Who we are. It'll change our culture. There are men and women that are responding to the gospel at the tune of over a hundred thousand a month in Rwanda, a country that has over fifteen million people. A hundred thousand a month are coming to Christ just through reaching souls. There's other work that's going on there, and there are other people that are sharing the gospel. But that's phenomenal. That that changes a culture. That changes the world. We can sit back and complain all day long about what's happening in our culture and what's taking place and politically and all the different things. Politically, we think we've got to gripe politically. Go to any of these countries and find out if you've got to gripe politically. <laughs> As a matter of fact, they joked about that some. They have elections there. They, they, they go to the polls knowing who's going to win. <laughs> They're already told who's going to win. I mean, we, 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 we get frustrated with what we're dealing with, and yet here these men and women are. That, that's... That's, that's temporary. That's secondary. They may not know where their next meal is coming from, but they know who he is. And they know that he has redeemed them. And he's done that so that they can be a part of seeing others redeemed. And they're yielding their life to that. And I pray that that be my heart. I pray that that would be yours individually and yours corporately. We invite many, many more. The harvest is plentiful. The problem is the labors are few. Oh, God, would you raise up laborers? That's what he invited us to do, to agree with him. God, would you raise up laborers? And those are prayers you can't pray without your hand up. You pray that prayer, you better have your hand up saying, and here I am, Lord, send me. God, would you raise up laborers? Here am I. Let me be the first one. If you pray that prayer honestly, you've got to do that simultaneously you pray me, Father, I pray that that would be true. Lord, be true in my life, be true in the lives of the men and women that are before me here today. Lord, that it would be that we're agreeing with you that the harvest is plentiful and there are lots of ones out there. Lord, I don't know how many souls have come to Christ since the very first soul that came to Christ after you resurrected from the tomb, but Lord, I'm looking forward to meeting all of them someday, gathering around the throne with them. Lord, I have to ask myself the question, is there going to be any of those there because of my witness? Lord, if there are going to be any of those there because I took risks? is there going to be any of those there that my family took risks? or that we were willing to lay down our rights so that your gospel, the gospel of grace, would go forth. God, I pray that we'd be that kind of people. Give us the courage, the strength, the vision, the... Uh, the passion, all that's necessary for that to be. So Lord, ultimately give us your spirit because it's your spirit in us that gives us opportunity and ability to give testimony as we proclaim your word to the very ends of the earth. God, may it be so. Lord, I pray that there would be soul after soul after soul that would be one to Christ right here in Oklahoma City. Lord, that there'd be new believers, there would be new life being birthed day by day right here, just as we hear these stories, testimonies of what's taking place in Rwanda and taking place in other countries around the world. Lord, I pray that we would not miss out. I want to thank you for the faithfulness of this church that allows for much of the work that I just spoke of to happen. Lord, let it not be that we just give for it to happen somewhere else, but that we'd be faithful to do it here. To your glory, in your glory alone, Lord, we pray that these things would be true.